Hey guys, just a quick note before we jump into this week's episode of InStride. InStride is brought to you by RideIQ. RideIQ is a mobile app with hundreds of on-demand listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by eventing, jumper, and dressage coaches. In other words, with RideIQ, you can take a lesson from an incredible coach during any ride you'd like. No hauling and no scheduling. Whether you're looking to add structure to your rides or try new exercises or build confidence, RideIQ can help. Membership is only $29.99 per month, and every membership automatically includes a two-week free trial. Try it for yourself today by downloading the RideIQ mobile app on iPhone or Android. On today's episode of InStride, Sinead talks to German Olympic event rider Bettina Hoy. Bettina has competed in numerous Olympic Games, European Championships, and World Equestrian Games. She won a team bronze medal at the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics at only 21 years old. Other notable accomplishments include winning team gold at the 2006 World Equestrian Games in Aachen and individual bronze at the 2007 European Championships, both on Ringwood Cockatoo. Bettina was the coach for the Dutch eventing team from 2017 to 2019, and she coached the Mars Bromont Rising Under 25 grant program in 2022. In her conversation with Sinead, Bettina talks about her amazing career and finding the desire to succeed within herself. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, everyone. I'm so excited to have my dear friend, Bettina Hoy, here joining us from Germany. Welcome, Bettina. Nice to see you. Good to see you too today. Well, I just want to jump right in. I actually had no idea where to even start because I had so many amazing memories of, of you and spending time with you and so many laughs and so many tears. It's really a mixed and I was bored, isn't it? Yes. It's a mixed of... of of smiles and tears it, it's the whole gambit yeah uh, but where i actually and, and just even talking to you a little bit before we got online here i want to start back when you first got into the into the eventing game because you're you, like really at your what your first world championships was it or olympics you were like 21 i mean you were a, i was uh 19 okay yeah so even younger than that Plus, it was a bit bit easier with quantifying in those days. (laughs) Like I did, I'd done the the young rider bit, which would be the equivalent of three-star long in the previous year when my horse was seven. And then a friend of my dad said, well, we have the world championships at Lemulin. It's 12 riders. Your daughter will never get a better chance of getting there quickly. So my dad said, well, what do we have to do? And he said, well, you start with the first qualifier. That was my first advance. I hadn't even done an advance before. And I, I fell at fence three or four. Oh, my God. Oh, well, that wasn't very good. So on to the next competition. And I can't remember. I, I must have been clear. I can't remember where I finished. I went to the German championships. And that went well as well. And then the last qualifier. And also went to the world championships. Oh my God. And, and that was, and that was quite fun in the fact that, um, there has never been a German woman before yeah. on a team or even, but there were two women that competed internationally before me, 
but they didn't make it to a championship. So I was the first one to make it to a championship. And with 12 riders and the reserves, you can imagine there were 15 riders and I was the only girl. So <laughs> well, some things were nice and others were quite <laughs> tough. Like I, I had to grow up quite quickly. Oh my God. Can you, yeah. Can you talk about that? Because that just seems like that should have been a hundred years ago and it definitely was not. <laughs> and it is, it is 40 years ago. Like it is a long, long time ago. I don't know. It just, with the right horse at the right time, it just seemed to be so easy. And I was so naive and blase about it. And I just thought, well, my horse can jump everything. I'm a very good rider. So what? And you just, you just go on. And yeah, as I said, I was very, very naive. I had the biggest trust in my horse and he was a very good jumper. Like I did show jump him up to a meter 45 as well, because right. there weren't that many events in Germany. Just to not get bored, I show jumped him to top level as well. Wow. So it was quite, quite good fun. So talk about growing up. How did you, I know your dad was a big influence. How did you... Mm -hmm to riding and in, in this life well I started riding I think I was about three when they put me first on a horse so from the age of three I was riding on my own dad had school horses he had a riding school so I ended up yeah riding every day then I think I must have been six or something when I got my first pony so I started on a horse uh, funny enough I was quite nervous of jumping when I was little, like 80 centimeters or 50 centimeters was fine, but not bigger. And then when I was seven, I had, well, sort of a rotational with a pony. And I think the stirrup was what smacked my leg. And I had, I broke the femur. Oh my God. It was like sort of a spiral break is what they called it. So I was in hospital for nine days, six weeks at home. So no school. So I thought, this is great. I got so many, so many presents. I was quite mobile on my, on my bum, even with a cast on my leg. And funny enough, after that, I wasn't afraid anymore. And I just thought, well, is this the worst? Well, in, in, at that age, you think, well, nothing worse can happen if this is the worst. So I had a good time. No school. Perfect. Rum. And then it was actually with, with eventing, I, I show jumped this particular pony up to international show jumping, pony show jumping. And also he was a midget, like in comparison to all these smart ponies today. And he was only a meter 38. So, which I think in international terms, they call it an M pony, mm -hmm. whereas the good ponies are G ponies as in big ponies. He was a medium pony uh, and he dressaged as well. I also rode horses dressage and show jumping and then I basically I think I that projected his dream of becoming a top rider into me dad uh, grew up on a farm he wasn't the oldest so he had to leave the farm at a younger age and then he decided he wanted to make a living with horses but whenever he had something decent he had to sell it to provide for the family and I think he lived his dream of being successful as a top rider through me. And we did it together. What was his dream became my dream. Mm. And then he, I think it was a very analytical thinking of saying, well, we don't have enough money to buy good dressage horses because they're expensive as young horses. 
same for show jumpers. And his idea was with eventing, if we invest a little bit with the training that we can do, at least up to German Championships junior young riders, we can make something that is good enough for me to be successful. Mm-hmm. And and so I did. And I, I remember doing my first cross country on my pony. And someone said to me, well, when you're nervous in front of a jump, you just have to scream. And that yes, to shout at him. And I think from the first fence to the last fence, they could hear me all the way around because I was screaming at him that you have to go and don't even think of stopping. Well, that obviously then I stopped doing that at some stage. <laughs> and then, and then I got my first horse for eventing. Dad bought the horse in a way a little bit for himself, but also to maybe produce it. She was five or six, produce it, sell it on. And uh, with her, I did my first regional championships and also the first German championships. And she took me to one Europeans as a junior in Punchestown. And when I was 14, dad went with some friends to Ireland. My parents had just started building a house. And I remember it to the day, he called my mum and said, He was only meant to go as a friend and as an advisor. So they went to Ireland to look at horses. Two friends were buying. Then he called my mother and he said, oh, Inga, I've bought two horses. And mum just went completely nuts. We have just built this house and it's costing so much money and we have to work so hard to make it play and work and blah, blah, blah. And dad said, oh, they're really good. And Bettina can show jump them a little bit. They're good jumpers and we can sell them within two years and then it's all worthwhile. Well. Needless to say, but didn't sell any of them. And Pisa was the one that took me all the way to my first Olympic Games. Wow, that's so incredible. Mm. It's so incredible. Yeah. What was that like go- going to your first Olympic Games and your your dad being there and kind of that horse? I mean, was your mom at that point like, okay, you made a good choice? <laughs> no, well, it was actually, I did the Worms in mm. 82, then the Europeans in 83, and there was actually quite a big offer on the table after the Europeans. I was double clear at the Worlds and I finished seventh at the Europeans the year later. And the selling the horse would have paid for the full mortgage and left my parents with some money. And my dad said she might never get that dream, uh, that, that, that chance again to go to the Olympic Games. It was always my dream. Now it's hers. I'm not going to take that away. And we will manage regardless. And I just went to LA and I, I just felt invincible. Like I just thought, what the hell? Like this was so easy to get here. And I think, and, and we were a team, three of us were 21 and one was 24. I think we were the absolute team management's nightmare, absolute nightmare, because we are far away from home. Surely they're not going to send us home, even if we misbehave. Well, obviously they didn't. So we just did what we wanted. Like they were telling us, and now we can't free today. We do dress ours. And I said, no, I'm not can't free today. The show jumpers are here. I want to show jump with the show jumpers. So I knew them all because I show jump peacetime. As I said, I show jumped him up to quite a high level as well. So instead of doing dressage, I show jumped. And I, I, I know, I know they hated us. They hated us like a, they hated us, but we had a good time. We came home with a bronze, so no one could say anything. 
<laughs> now, fast forward a few years and having been on the other side of that yeah. manager yeah. and coach, can you imagine? What's your perspective there oh, now? Absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. On on the other hand, I think that naivety also made us deal with the pressure. The, and And if I look back, it was funny. It's only like a couple of months ago and I went to visit our old team vet's widow. And we sat down and she actually had some footage and I was sitting on her sofa with a friend. We were watching the the video from Los Angeles and here I come in, in the dressage. And then my friend said, Bettina, put him on the bed. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I didn't know it looked that bad. It's horrendous. But then you can see how much, how much you go forward, how much you improve, how much you have to improve. And when Peacetime got old, I retired him from eventing when he was 14 and only show jumped him. And then I did for, for eight or nine years, I didn't have a top horse. And I realized I have to become a better rider. Like there's just no way around. We can never afford to buy a top horse. So I have to become a better rider to, to do a better job. And that's what I did. Hmm. And I think this, this being so innocent about the pressure has got a lot of positives, maybe channel, channeling that <laughs> is the key. And the, the very Germanic way of our old team management didn't do quite a good job. Well, in the end, it seems to have worked. So yeah. can you talk about that evolution? Like, was there a moment, like obviously that moment when you thought, okay, I have to get better. What was, it was very pragmatic and, and how did you do that? What was the next step? Well, we bought what we could afford to buy. And I realized whatever you want a horse to do, it starts in the arena. It's basics, basics, basics. You have to teach any horse you have to find out how good could they be. You have to train them within their ability and then try and get the maximum out. That might not be what you would like it to be, but at least up until that level, you can go. And so the dressage, with all those horses that came after peacetime, the dressage became more and more, I realized the dressage is really, really important. And it's just the basis and the fundament of everything else before you start putting the pressure of running and jumping at speed onto that horse. The show jumping courses in those days, they weren't as technical nor as big as they today. So because my background was quite a lot show jumping anyway, so I did not find that difficult. And up until I left Germany to move to England, I always show jumped other people's horses up to a higher level as well. So that was never really a big thing for me. But the dressage, I certainly had to work. And with the help of my dad, because I often speak with friends and they ask, well, how did you learn the dressage? And I always find the most difficult thing to teach someone is fear. Now, I, how did I learn that? I learned it when I was little, when I was a midget, when I couldn't do it. It was, Dad, can you please get on? So Daddy got on. He worked the horses for 10 minutes. He had a very unusual style to ride like most of the time he didn't even have breeches and boots on he had some jeans on and some slacks and he would just sort of fiddle away but he had such great fear that he just got the horses to do what he wanted them to do and then he put me back on 
and I felt the difference. Now, if you don't know what good feels like, if you are used to having 50 kilos in your hands, then having 49 is an improvement. But when I got on the horses, I felt what dad was always talking about. And he said, in the ideal world, you should not have a lot more than the weight of the reins in your hand. It is obviously a little bit more than that. But I was always aiming towards that because physically I was able to do that and, and control that with my size and my strength. <laughs> well, that's so, that's so interesting when you talk about feel and if feel could be taught. So would, would that be advice if you kind of, if we've got people listening right now and they're like, well, I don't know if I have feel or not. Would it be really to go back and say, okay, have somebody hop on your horse, have it feeling good, get back on and actually feel it. I mean, actually feel is something that you can talk about until you're blue in the face, but you actually yeah. have to get on and. That was, is always my approach. Like I always ask the riders who I'm helping, can I have a sit? Because I want to feel, and sometimes you say, oh, well, what I suggested for you to do actually doesn't work. And now having felt it, I think we need to go about a different way. And, and I don't mind getting to the point of say, well, I actually don't have a solution for now. Let's try A, B, C, and D and learn by doing. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think no one knows it all. And I only ever worked with trainers in particular on the flat where I could say, well, you have a sit, you show me. Right. Right. Like I, I remember Klaus Baltmore, like when, when the flying change got introduced and he would hop on watermill stream and then he would do flying changes and, and then he would trot and canter around. And I said to someone, does he look like that when I ride him? And I said, not quite. And I thought, well, I need to learn that. I need to learn what he's doing on top that the horse trots like this, that it canters like that that it sort of does the flying change. Then I got back on and I couldn't get it. I just could. So I had to play away for several days at home with what I saw Klaus doing, what I heard him telling me, and then out of a sudden it made thicker. So now I've got it. But it's, it's like the one thing that you have to be patient with your horses, but you also have to be patient with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading an article that uh, a, a, a very famous uh, original student, I think of yours, Julia Krasowski. I remember chatting with her maybe two a year or two ago mm -hmm. that, that you had helped her so much. But she was talking about how much help she gets and that twice a week she's getting help and eyes on the ground and the flat and the jumping and that side of it. How much, it's interesting from a, an amateur all the way through professional, how different people train and how much they feel like they should get help or have eyes on the ground. Like for you, what would be your perfect ratio of how many lessons, how much help, how much time you spend on your own kind of figuring it out? And is it different per, per person what they need as far as how, how disciplined they are? I think everyone learns differently and, and it's also... Let's face it, it's also a money issue, isn't it? How much can you afford? I mean, I was lucky of being based in Warndorf for a while, but also in my early days, having my dad on the ground and that critical eye on the ground every single day. And dad, although he was a fantastic horseman and instructor, he was never afraid to say, well, now you go off. You go to Klaus, you go to all various other people, clinics. Uh, and then obviously 
I would come home and then obviously I knew it better, didn't I? I mean, especially at a young age. And then we had all these discussions, but that was healthy. So he would hear what I had heard if he didn't talk to the trainers himself as well. And then we would work away. So I was in a very lucky position of having, having that on a daily basis. I think it's got to be a minimum of a lesson with someone once a week. I think to me, that would be the minimum, whether you want to improve your dressage, whether you want to improve your jumping, to have a basic understanding. I have too many people that only come every so often, and then you feel you always start from scratch. You can set some ideas and, and often it is not one thing, it's several things that need improving before you can go forward. But the human brain can only focus on a maximum of two things that you can maybe focus on in one session. Now, if you don't follow up on that, it's very difficult for that person, depending on how they nature, to stick with this and, and maybe have, I, like, I have one Dutch student and the mother always keeps notes. So I know when they train at home, she will mention all those things to her daughter, what I said, and she will keep reminding her, but not everyone does that. Really interesting. So let's, let's chat maybe a little bit about, I mean, I like chatting about Ringwood Cockatoo a little bit. Can we talk? Uh-huh. <laughs> of course. I think that uh, horse stands out to me as probably when I first was in awe of you. And I've been in awe of you several times since, but that stands out in my, in my head. Can you talk about that horse and that journey? Because you guys just did some incredible, incredible things. Yeah, Cockatoo came to us. He was actually tried, Andrew tried him for, for the Magnia. They were looking for a horse, uh, for one of their sons. So he was based with that Swiss rider. Funny enough, is the aunt of Felix Fogg, who I now train. So it's Felix's aunt that had Ringwood Cockatoo. She was based with Tiny Clapham in England. And so Andrew went and tried him and, and said he wasn't sure that it was the right horse for the boys, but he would have an owner that could be interested in buying the horse for him. So Mr. Fredrickson bought the horse for Andrew. They went to Cornbury Park, I think in the, I don't know whether he did an intermediate or straightaway advance. I can't remember. The horse was placed three star long in Punchestown. And then had to stop at the coffin and then it sort of continued. He would have the odd stop on the cross country, would have the odd stop in the show jumping. And then Andrew was trying to get ready for Sydney with his other two horses, Darien Powers and Swizzlin. And riding Cockatoo just revved him completely up because obviously being a perfectionist, he tried to obviously get the best results out of Cockatoo as well. And Cockatoo just wouldn't do it for him. And then I suggested to him, look, why don't you focus on powers and swizzle? And I ride Cockatoo for a while. So it's not affecting the Olympic games. And so we did, and I competed him a few times and it worked quite well. And I guess my way of riding cross country, whether you want to call it the German way. I don't know if Andrew likes to take the first distance and come really floaty, whether it's a long one, whether it's a little bit 
deeper and the horses have to be and jump. They have to react and they have to look after themselves a little bit more. Me having been brought up with a heavy Australian horse, my first junior horse, she wasn't the most careful jumper, but she was a capable jumper. But for her to jump clean, especially in the show jumping, I have to connect her. I have to set her up. I said, here's the jump. This is the distance we're jumping. And then I would speed away. And that was the way Cockatoo liked to be ridden. Like you could not take that first distance, sometimes not even the second. But the third distance, he was fine. But he wanted that connection. He wanted to feel that you are there, that you're really committed. And he said, here's the jump. And there's no doubt about it. We're jumping it. And then I sort of did three events. I won all three of them at three-star level. And then the winter came and then we had, I think then came foot and mouth. So we spent some time in Germany. Foot and mouth in England stopped all the competitions. So we spent a bit more time in Germany and, and we started riding Cockatoo again. The first competition was great, which was Lemoon and three-star and he won it. And then the stops in the cross country, but also in the show jumping, they started again. And then we had a discussion with the owner and the owner said he would like to protect his investment as well. And would it be an idea if I take over the ride? And that's how I got to ride Cockatoo. And he wow. was, he was, it was lovely to ride. Like I, I, his, my way of riding suited him down to the ground. And I did have the odd stop as well. I had a stop at the Europeans at Blenheim. I had a stop with him at the Europeans in Punchestown. When I wasn't riding with sort of in my mind, the knife between my teeth. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was quite funny. I had to, I had to walk the cross country course already like that. So I was looking a little bit like this, gritting my teeth and people just always thought that I'm really angry, but I had, I was not, but I had to work myself into this frame of mind <clears throat> that I could ride him cross country because he had to be like a tiger. He would have, I would have to fear that he wants to fuck me off because he's so keen to go. And then I still had to hold and kick to give him the confidence that he could do it. And the one time only uh, that he actually went on a distance that he normally would have stopped on was at his very last big one, which was Kentucky when he came second. I had not a good distance to one of the corners and he actually jumped. He actually sort of took his front feet out and I thought, well, now it's paying off that I looked after you all those years and now you're doing something for me, which, yeah, which made me very much appreciate him even more because I think down at heart, he was not a brave horse, but he did it because I said, it's okay. I'm here. I'm holding you. You can do it. And what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, through your career, have there been horses that you've gotten on and ridden or even competed for years and, and something and you said this one isn't really right for me but I'm what's a mover it's a jumper I'm gonna keep it I know I've had that happen a few times and we get so um like almost stubborn about it as opposed mm -hmm. this is not the right match and some that just for some reason are have you had horses like that or ha have you been of the mind frame I'll figure it out and I'll learn how to ride it most of the time I've figured it out unless the horse is very young like we're talking one and two star level already showing me that eventing was not their game for whatever reason. And then I did sell them, um, but I did it early. I didn't, I didn't go on and on and on horses that other horses, Lance Franco, for example, he was third with me at Blenheim. He was 10th at Burley and 
he was a horse that I felt heartbroken when I had to give him up in my divorce. And I knew it wouldn't work. I knew it would never work for Andrew because the horse was far too complicated. You could not dominate him. You, you had to let him be and you had to let him be nervous, not forcing him to stay in one place if he wasn't comfortable there. A lot of the horses that I had, I would say, potentially he was one of the most talented. Yeah. But he was just, I don't think he meant to be aggressive, but he was just freaked out. Everything freaked him out. Yeah. Which was, which was quite sad. Like in hindsight, it's, it's very sad for a horse. And when Ollie ended up getting him for nothing, because obviously it didn't, it didn't work for Andrew. And then Ollie ended up having him. Um, Ollie was very clever in just riding him at the events with no atmosphere. And they still had quite a nice, uh, some quite nice seasons together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting that part of it. And I think that's, like the eventing seems to bring out the relationship part between mm. horse and rider. I mean, how yeah. do you, now that you're doing so much coaching, are there, how much emphasis do you put on the individual as opposed to the system? Oh, it's got to be always, it has to fit the horse's nature, what you're asking them to do. And as I said earlier, it has to fit their ability. Uh, and you have to bring the body in the shape that they can deal with everything. And if you, I think if you spend enough time gaining their trust, then they will also do something if you make a mistake. And I think we do need to teach the horses to deal with that as well, not having the perfect distance because even the best riders sometimes have an odd distance and the horses need to be agile enough, mobile enough, and also trust trusting in us enough to then adjust it and, and still make, make a good jump and make it happen. Yeah. Hi everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity to give you some inside information on what makes Tota Saddles different. This new Tota Freedom Jump Line, which we were lucky enough to help design, is contoured away from the shoulder and the shoulder muscle, not only to allow new freedom of movement, but it encourages a more uphill balance and an and effortless comfort for the horse. The new balance puts the rider in harmony in a connected and powerful way. One more amazing perk of this saddle is that it has a metal tree, meaning you can fit it to any horse you have now and any horse that enters your barn in the future. At Copperline, we pride ourselves in a progressive horse-first approach. And when we met Charlie and learned that his TOTA comfort system was founded on an understanding of the horse's biomechanics, maximizing performance, and the total comfort of the horse, we knew we had to work with this team. Please check out the Dressage Connection or follow the TOTA comfort system on Facebook or Instagram. If you want ad-free listening on the Instride, head over to Ride IQ where you can listen without interruption. And now back to the podcast. So, so career-wise, was there was there always going to be a progression where you where you're going to think I'm I want to step into a coaching role. I enjoy this part as well as the competition. I want to be in a, a senior team management role because you really have had such a decorated career. Um, you could go any direction you wanted. You could be out there winning five stars right now. So was there a moment, was there a shift that you decided to change gears a little bit? Was this always a, a plan? Well, I've always coached all my life. Like when I was a teenager, I had to teach just to help funding the sport. So 
I would write in the morning. I would help mum. My parents and mum had a tech shop. So I would help mum in the afternoon and then I would teach in the evening just to have enough money to go to the events, pay for the entries and all the rest of it. So the coaching and going into more coaching was in a way a natural progression. And I'd done sort of studied half-heartedly economy to realize that's not really me. I'm not really into the figures that much. I'm a, I'm a hands-on person. I want to do something. I want to be involved. I was still involved in the sport. So I did my master exam as a riding instructor in Warndorf, uh, which is like a 10-week course. I've done my judges' exams, but that's like I did it a while ago and then I had to renew it last year because I let it all slip. But to actually stop eventing was a little bit when I was working for the Dutch Federation as a coach. They didn't want me to compete alongside. And I don't know, in hindsight, I probably could have put my foot down and say it was either me or not at all. On the other hand, I always wanted to stop when I'm at top, on the top. I, I never wanted anyone to say, oh, why didn't you stop two years ago? Like, no, it doesn't really good anymore. And so I'm, in a way, I'm glad that I did. Um, and to then start doing more pure dressage also was a natural progression because a dressage you can do a bit alongside. It's not that time consuming as eventing. And again, with the training at and the education of a young horse, I think you can achieve, or I, I feel I can achieve more with the dressage horse than in show jumping. So as much as I miss the jumping and my poor dressage horse still has to jump as well. When I'm bored and he has to go to water and jump a little ditch. <laughs> I don't want a stupid dressage horse that you can't ride from A to B. So he has to, he has to be a proper horse. And, but that's, I think that's, that's good. It's good for the horse and, and it just, keeps them a little bit more sane and makes their life a little bit more interesting than just knowing the outdoor and indoor arena. Yeah. Yeah. And do you enjoy it? Like, do you, uh, like, I, I find watching so hard. Like, I find that so much more stressful than doing. Do you, how do you handle yeah, the pressure in yeah. those big team competitions? Obviously, well, actually, let's back up. I mean, what was your relationship like with pressure as a rider how did you handle obviously with starting young you felt a little naive but then as you kind of escalated and there became expectation how did you how did you handle all of that what was your mindset like i i never found that quite difficult i have to say like even like when i did my a levels i sort of i could tunnel vision quite well and sort of in that last minute, it's just this one thing and nothing else. And as soon as I was on the horse, as soon as I got near the start box, all the nerves were gone. Uh, the same as soon as I ride into the arena, I just make myself a little bit taller, if I can, <laughs> and put a smile on my face and then off I go. But it's it's probably been sort of a little bit in me all all my life. Like I never found that very difficult. I found it more difficult dealing with if you have like personal pressure from the outside like with like in a relationship and then still trying to compete and be as successful as you can that was definitely more challenging and I did have a lot of conversations with our team psychologist in that respect but not uh, in regards to the actual performance because I would speak with the trainers I would have a plan I would know how to warm up I know how to ride every fence there's plan A, B, C, and D, and then I can stick to that. 
Well, it seems like that that discipline and well, the discipline, the the understanding, the mechanics and all of that, and then having good coaching around you, you're like, yeah, you know, this is what I can do. Yeah, but it, it it's it's a little bit like thinking about it. My parents, like my mom, and I should talk to my brother about it. My mother always implanted into us, you could do whatever you want to do. You just have to work hard. And if it's not working, keep working at it. Like, don't don't give up. Like, we're not we're not quitters. We keep going. And for my mother in particular. Now it's, I don't know how it, whether it is like that in America, but with the German language, our words have a gender. You either male, female, or neutral. Like mm-hmm. every word, like house, garden, whatever, curtain, television, everything has a gender. And jobs as well. And now everyone has, makes a really big issue out of whether, like in German, I made my master degree. So in in German, I'm Meister, but not because I'm a woman, I'm Meisterin. I find that ridiculous. Like when I, when I, if, if that's the only way you identify yourself as a woman, that's quite sad. Hmm. And my mom probably implanted that into us, like regardless of whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're male, female or whatever, you can make it happen. You just have to, as I said, you just have to work hard and. The sport has certainly helped me. The horses have helped me because it has nothing to do with being physically strong. Mm-hmm. It has to do with whether you understand your horse, whether you can adjust to the situation. And that always gave me a lot of mental strength. It gave me mental strength at school, uh, what I learned in competition. That I could come out of the class with my pony and I won it. And then come out all excited because I had the fastest time in the jump off and that would say yes it was good but yeah there was always the but you <laughs> so it just pushed me all the time to become back better and 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 work hard and regardless of what happened it was never ever the fault of the horse never yeah you yeah. either didn't ride well enough you just you didn't anticipate this just have to learn to become better so interesting so then when you when you moved into some of your coaching roles obviously at that point you're dealing with personalities and different personalities as well how 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 did was that a was that a curve or what that was was, difficult yeah that was very difficult yeah because i I don't know. I just expected because obviously most of the riders I'm dealing with at, at from since I'm older, they all riding already at a certain level. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them. And in a way, I always expected that dedication, that focus, that desire to learn, the willingness to leave your own comfort zone, gritting your teeth, putting everything else aside and just focus on this one thing I always assumed that most of the people or all the people should be like that mm-hmm. and they're not so adjusting to that especially in that Dutch team job I found that quite difficult and and obviously it's different when you the coach of a team it's very different because you get planted in front of people 
they get told, well, this the new coach now, rather than people coming to you because they like the way you ride, they like the way you train, uh, they like you as a person. That's obviously a very different ball game. And I I have to say, like with, with the Dutch job, I probably learned more about myself than anything else, how to how to deal with that. How do you deal with people that are not as motivated as I am? How do you deal if they're not giving everything because they can't or they don't want to or other things and, you know, being at a party and having a long dinner rather than going to bed early and, and focus on the job the next day. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it, it was interesting to deal with those situations. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, was there, how did you do that? I mean, was there a moment where you just had to decide to let certain things go or control what you could? Because it, it is really difficult, especially now. I mean, I know we've struggled with that and you've been over here quite a bit, but we've had kind of last, I mean, 10, 15 years trying to figure out, do we need a coach? Do we need a, a advisor? What is that role? Because it is a difficult role to fill because like you said, it all of a sudden becomes actually almost more people management than right. coaching or horse management or team strategy. So how, looking back at that situation now, what did you come away with learning? And if you could do it again, what, would you change anything or did it evolve in a way that you felt like was pretty natural? I think, first of all, you do, if, you want, if you want to participate, fine just have a go and have fun if you want to win medals you need to have that dedication otherwise there's just no way that you win medals. Mm. like that's if i look at the german riders and my own experience from being on the german team having seen or having had a bit of an insight into the australian team obviously as well they all really dedicated people they listen to what you say they want to change all the things that are said they prepare to leave their comfort zone and they work bloody hard um, what helped me to deal with the other people was we did a psychological test, you know, mm. where you're, you're, you answer questions and then you get put into colors. Mm. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. So that helped me to, for example, know there was one person and she liked to talk about the pot plants by the jumps and the blue sky and the sheep in the next field about her kids having gone to school today and it just sets off the other riders. So I walked the cross-country course with her on my own and then put the others together so that they would fit and they wouldn't jump onto each other's nerves. So that, it helped them, but it also helped them to know how, what color I am, mm. uh, which is obviously as you can imagine, the strong colors. I'm all yeah. red. I'm all red. There's yeah. very little hints of other colors in it. <laughs> and they have become, when I did the test the second time, a year and a half later, I had more hints of the other color. So I had learned a little bit. <laughs> so that was interesting. And, and knowing those things, you can help the riders. But I just, I honestly feel the real desire of being good has to be within yourself. And if you're just there to participate or being selected and just having a good time, that's not enough. Mm. Yeah. 
So I think that's where one has to toughen up. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Bottom line. Bottom line. <laughs> so, and so now, so can actually, I want to talk a little bit about the fitness side of stuff as well, because that's obviously been a huge component for you. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that? Because the, again, there's always this debate about athletes and where we fit as riders on that scale. I think, but yeah, I do believe most of the riders are not fit enough. A lot of the riders, unless they do something. But then I also think that some riders, when, when I teach and you have a rider that always puts that right shoulder forward, just as an example, or the outside shoulder forward, instead of sitting square in comparison to the horse's shoulder. And then you say it, they hear what I say, but their body doesn't do it. So for that reason alone, taking endurance and strength fitness completely away, but to being able to allow your brain to talk to that one muscle group, keep it back and and put it back and keep it there. For that alone, I think riders do need to look at their own fitness a lot closer. Because how can you expect the horse to perform at its best if you're not in balance? If you're constantly pulling on the rein because you can't sit independently on your seat bones, being elastic in your elbows, only having your hands assisting to what you want the horse to achieve, but riding it off your seat and your legs and having an independent seat. You can't expect the horse to do any high performance. Some horses are so kind. And they still do. And you wonder, whoa. But then you have a lot of riders that pull and kick at the same time. Not intentionally, but that's what they end up doing. They can't sit elastic enough. And then in my eyes, a horse has got three ways to react. They either ignore you or they go really hot and nervous, especially when they come into the dressage arena or they get aggressive. So neither of the the reaction you want. But it's always miscommunication. And, and that's where riders really need to look at that their seat is balanced enough that they can actually ride with the aids that the horse understands them. And what and, would you recommend for a lot of this? I mean, are you, again, taking away strength training, thinking more of yoga, Pilates, that type of thing? Or what would you, or is it? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big CrossFit fan. Are you? Yeah, huge. Because I never, I never thought weightlifting would be fun, but it is so relevant to what we do in the saddle because it's all about you don't have to lift really heavy weights, but learning the technique really addresses the core, it addresses the back. It's, it's, it gets you quick reacting in your arms. So you have to be independent. You have to jump under the weight and CrossFit certainly helped me to understand when you have, you have a workout and you have as many rep, M-reps, as many repetitions as possible, and you have like three exercises and you have whatever, 10 or 15 minutes to do as many repetitions of your three exercises possible. And you well into your exercises and you can't remember what round you're in. So it just, unless you, you get these little chips that you put down, finish first round, second, third, and so on. So in the end, how many rounds you've done. And it just showed me that once you start getting physically tired, your brain is not working that well anymore. 
Now, the same will happen to the horse. You can't expect at the end of the cross country, you can't expect the horse to have that same reaction with their legs or to your aids than they had in the beginning or in the middle when they were all fresh. The same as you. So you have to be fit at the end of the cross-country course to assist the horse and get that communication still almost to perfection. So when the horse gets mentally tired, you can help them physically. That's, yeah, that's so funny. I, I have experienced that multiple times and it was a huge kind of, uh, yeah, light bulb moment for me. And I did the same thing. I was like, oh my gosh, this must be how the horses get when they're so tired yeah. when remember if I've done three rounds or I've done 20 push-ups or like I'd have no idea just yeah tired just because yeah. you're and and before I did I mean I've always gone to the gym I've always done I've done sort of a bit of running I've done the cycling and as I said sort of half-heartedly like gym work but I've never ever ever before I started CrossFit pushed myself to the mm. limit where I said I just can't go any further I just can't like getting my body really exhausted and it, it has taught me a lot. It's helped me a lot to understand the horses better, but also the effect of getting fitter even now when I want to I sit on my five-year-old dressage horse that can be a bit opinionated and quite strong, how I get my point across without being tough, without being aggressive, without being too strong, because you're just so much quicker in that right position and, and, and communicating with the horse in a much nicer way. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like too, even going down from a teaching route, there is a certain where it's hard at times if you really as a as an amateur or somebody that doesn't get to be on the tack that much. I I find it difficult when you're just when you're teaching and you're just you're the horse is just about to get it and the rider gets tired and you just have to take a break because yeah. it's yeah. You know, and so from that finding motivation there to just elevate just enough so that the even the money that you're spending on that lesson is is more well spent because you can stay in it absolutely carrying it out yeah, yeah. that's a tough and you just have to be dedicated enough because at the end i mean obviously crossfit you have more crossfit boxes in the u.s than we have here but even if you do just simple exercises like doing your squats doing push-ups doing lunges even that doing overhead lunges with a broomstick above your head do it in front of the mirror and see how straight you are all those little things can help you already getting physically a lot fitter uh, if you don't have time or if you don't have access to to someone that can help you with your physical fitness. Yeah. But there are lots of online courses and all yeah. that as well now. So it, it should really, if someone, if someone is keen to become a better rider, that should be part of the training. It's not just the horse and what you do on the horse is what you do off the horse as well. Yeah, 100%. All right, I'm going to move into these questions in the in lieu of the time. Yeah. So we can have you on your way. Okay, what is the biggest lesson a horse has taught you about yourself? Be more Other patient. Color red. Be, be a lot more patient, a lot more patient. Mm. Don't expect everyone or everything to understand you straight away because you might have to repeat, repeat, repeat before they understand. I had to learn to think outside the box sometimes like if i can't do something when we're at crossfit i have to scale it down find an easier way to learn a movement and then go up again i do the same with the horse and if they don't understand me then i have to make it easy i have to think about an easier way of better prep movements 
before I do my first flying change, before I start half past, before I even start children, before I even start going from trot, uh, from walking to trot, from trot into canter, from walking to canter. Like that's, um, yeah, that's probably, I did write a few things down when you sent me those questions. I think for everything, as I said, you can find a different way. And don't, don't just think of that one way. On the other hand, uh, the lessons that the horses taught me as well is don't change your game plan all the time. Because then, as I said, sometimes you just have to wait. You put your leg on for the fly change. Don't go leg on change. Put your leg on. Maybe even wait a couple of strides until the horse goes, oh, you want me to do a fly change? Now those aids then become more and more fine-tuned. Um, and the other thing is what I said earlier is it doesn't matter if, whether you male or female, the horses taught me that I can do equally as good as any man. I just have to pick the horse. Maybe that's not that strong or find another way of riding it if they are strong. Uh, so physical strength isn't necessarily what gets you to win a medal or to be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's that keys right into the the fitness part of it as well as that the motivator for that is to ride correctly and in balance. Yeah. It's not for strength. It's yeah, exactly. Balance. Mm. Exactly. Do you have a favorite training or competition mantra you reference regularly? Never be afraid of taking a step back. Mm. Like if something if something doesn't work, go two steps back. Build a bridge, what I said before, in a way, build a bridge for the horse to understand. And if in any doubt, go back to basics. And to me, basics are transitions, transitions, transitions. Keep them really simple. Start, walk, trot, walk, trot, walk, trot, trot, canter, trot, canter, trot, canter, on the line you want to ride. Circle and simple lines. I'm not talking difficult lines. 20 meter circle all the way around the arena, 20 by 60 or whatever you've got at home, like straight line and a bent line. If you can do that when you want, how you want, you're already halfway there. Mm. Yeah, that's that's so huge because it's so easy to yeah. think complicated, more complicated, where it's yeah. simple. When, when, when I had, yeah, when I had my, my upper level dressage was, and he was already competing at pre-St. George level, and I had all these plans, what I wanted to do that one day. And then I started trot canter transitions and they weren't quite the way I wanted. So I did nothing else. 45 minutes, well, obviously a little bit walk in between, but 45 minutes trot canter, trot canter until he did it exactly like I want. I could do the, the, the back and forth. I could connect the trot before I was striking off in canter. I could connect the canter before I would drop down to trot again. And then the next day. I went back to my plan and all the movements fell into place like nothing. So it it had achieved more than if I would have stuck to my plan and say, okay, now we're doing our prices, we're doing temperature changes and all the rest of it. So it 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 does make sense to really focus on those things. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way that you still reference today? Chris Bartle was very good when I went through my private difficult time and he just always looked at me when I was in preparation and he said tunnel vision and with that I could blend out everyone and everything that was right and left 
and the other piece would be head up and smile. So there's something that upsets you. Someone barged into you in the warm-up, your horse got upset or happens on the outside. And I always try to smile it off. And the funny thing is, if you smile long enough, and even to the point of where your face hurts, but if you smile long enough, at, the, at a certain time, you feel like smiling. And you feel better. You feel positive and you signal that to the other people, but you also signal that to your horse because it relaxes you. And sort of, as I said before, like making myself bigger, I put a smile on when I'm in that shoot of going into the main arena. When I start my dressage test, I go like this. I know that when I'm sitting properly, I head up, smile on my face, and it just gives you positive outlook. And people look at you and think, oh, wow, she's confident. She is. It's mm. about to happen. The test will be good. So yeah. you, you give that impression and you give that impression with your physique and then in no time you feel like that as well. And it has always helped me. Mm. And it, it, I'm assuming you use that a lot with your, I was just thinking if, if you said that to me right before I went in, it'd be probably the best piece of advice instead of saying, remember a little more leg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. always far too complicated, isn't it? There's one thing doing this. It's just one movement. That's really easy to do, but it puts you in the right frame of mind. It relaxes your body in a way. It, it sort of, it has a positive engagement, but it also relaxes your mind. And then you think of all the other things that I said in the weeks before in our dressage lessons, you will remember them then anyway, because you have my, my ear, my uh, voice in your ear. Uh, is, uh, what do you do when you are seeking inspiration? The beginning of COVID sort of lockdown, as someone mentioned the high performance podcast to me, which is two British guys. One is a professor of sports psychology, I want to say, and the other one, uh, Damien Hughes, and I can't think of the other guy. It's called the high performance podcast. And they have lots of sports people, gold medalists. Formula One drivers, they have entrepreneurs, really business, uh, successful business people. And you listen to those and you realize they all had shitty times. They all had tough times. But what made them better and different to other people is they stuck with it. They're bloody hard workers. They're dedicated to what they believe in and they kept going. They're not quitters and they, they work for it. And then I think if you build, and it doesn't matter what it is, it can be a really small goal. Like you want to go to your first novice or you want to go to your first one star, whatever. You want to just get around the cross country. In Australia, they have a class, they call it have a goal. And I love that because <laughs> it, it's just great, isn't it? Because that, but that is the frame of mind. If you just, and if you can use that and it, it helps you just stick with that, stick with your dream, live with, live your dream. Don't give it up. Love that. And that's, that's where this high performance podcast is, is great. And I, I do recommend it to most of my students to listen to it when you have your long journeys, especially in the U S when you drive for ages to, to a competition, they're very good to listen to. I think that's on my list. Okay. And our last question, have you had an experience or adversity separate from horses in your life that you feel like has directly influenced you as a horsewoman? 
there would be CrossFit as we, as we talked about it, it has taught me a lot about being tired and how the brain works when the body is tired. You do yeah. understand your horse's mental. You do understand also what you have to do for fitness. And it's not just your gallop. It's what you do in the arena as well. Like you watch, for example, I, I'm sure you've done that. You watch Michael Jung warming up for the dressage and he would canter for 15 minutes the day before the competition. So he would go back and forth and in his transitions within the canter, flying change, half pass, make the strides, come back, collect, almost doing a walking period. And he would just canter, canter on end. It is a form of CrossFit as well. It is a form of fitness for the horse as well. So you're not just working heart and lung, but you're working the muscles, you're working the coordination, you work the rideability, all those things that you need on the cross country as well. And so for me, any problems you have on the cross country, unless they're specific of a ditch problem or a water problem, you start fixing them. To me, you start fixing them in the arena and not, mm. you, you start there, then you take it into a bigger field. Then you take it over show jumps, then you take it onto the cross country. So, but that's where CrossFit has taught me a lot. And how long have you been doing CrossFit? Four years now? No, five years now. Obviously during, during COVID, I had to buy all the stuff and put my own little gym in the house <laughs> because nothing was happening for like a year and a half. No. So that sort of dropped me back a little bit in regards to my own fitness. But it also kept me mentally stable. And I find that quite refreshing and because you can get rid of certain aggression as well. If you really power yourself until you land on the floor, it helps you to deal with stress. And mm. for me, that, that is a good relief as well, because I'm not riding that many horses anymore. So it's good to do that in another way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been incredible, Bettina. So inspiring and wonderful to talk to you always. You get me pumped for the rest of my day and the rest of my week. And uh, yeah, it's just been wonderful. And quickly before I let you go, what's what's next? When will we see you next? Probably at Kentucky, I guess. I'm coming over the weekend, or the plan is for me to come over the weekend before and work with a few riders. And then I will be at Kentucky. I go to badminton for Felix. And then uh, obviously, which I'm very excited about going to Bromont for the under 25 yeah. uh, that are sponsored very kindly by Mars. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to that. I did it at Galway Downs last year and now Bromont is my first time. I've never been to Canada. I've never been to Bromont. I've got a cousin in Montreal that I haven't seen for 35 years. So I will catch up with him. So all good. I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, so fantastic. Okay, well, I will see you at Kentucky and um, appreciate you so much and good luck with everything. Thank you very much. You too. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous 
horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that InStride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you during the next episode.